0: What's up everyone, Ryan Ray here inside the war room, Dr. Bruce Gilly is our guest today, but first, 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 let me pay some bills by telling you where to get your hosting from, that's com slash hosting with Bluehost, if you do that, all you gotta do, all you gotta do is just send me that screenshot and I will hook you up with Free advertising on this podcast. Okay, so Queen Elizabeth has died, as we all know by now, um, and so I got an I got on a guest to speak about that. And it's, I'm not I am not a um, person who has really studied the monarchy, as you can tell by listening to this podcast for sure. But I have some thoughts and I have some questions, and so I wanted to hear what will the legacy of Queen Elizabeth II be? What might we expect from King Charles? We talk about all of that with Bruce Gilly. Who is the professor of political science at Portland State? He's also authored a couple of interesting books. We talk about one at the end, which um, it's a it's a, almost a stunning title. It's um, "In Defense of German Colonialism and How It Empowered." I'm sorry, and how its critics empowered Nazis, communists, and the enemy. So not a defense of Nazism, but a defense of um, kind of like the critique of the Treaty of Versailles, I would believe, and also the last imperialist, Sir Alan Burns' epic defense of the British Empire. So we'll link to all of that in the show notes, which are where, warroommedia.com, all that. we got all kinds of stuff going on at the website, so go check it out. That's the website. It's a newsletter. You can sign up for it all there, warroommedia.com. Okay, let's
1: get to the show.
0: Well, Dr. Gilly, welcome to the War Room. How are you doing?
1: Thank you. Uh, Very well, thank you.
0: Okay, so let's talk about... The queen for a second and let me maybe unpack my perspective uh but curious to yours because for me the queen has not really been something that I've, I've i don't follow the monarchy much um you'll hear some new stories here and there um i'm 37 so i remember princess Die dying um didn't really understand the significance of that at the time either um of course now with the recent death of the queen there's a lot of people talking about it from an american perspective maybe what's the biggest misconception about the monarchy that's out there?
1: I think the British biggest misconception is that the monarchy has been some you know, uh, <clears throat> powerful force imposing itself on the world and trying to keep these places that were part of the British empire, a part of Britain and fighting against self-government movements. Um, I mean, that might've been true Uh, In the 16th century, maybe in the very early colonies, but but the British monarchy's never been part of that. I mean, even up to and including George III, I mean, I think he's much misunderstood. And certainly, certainly with this monarch, Elizabeth II, I mean, she essentially presided over the end of the British Empire, for the most part, and... um, you know, as recently as 2021, Barbados, which had been uh, kept its constitutional monarchy relationship to Britain, uh, turned itself into a republic. Uh, the royal family was very supportive. And and then Prince Charles went to Barbados and handed them the instruments of their um, uh, constitution, which they then turned into republic. So, um, you know, the, the British, I mean, I guess Americans get this kind of comic book uh, revolutionary story about how they fought against the king and the king was trying to hold them back and they were so valiant and they overthrew the british empire but it's, it is a comic book it's a, a it's a comic book account of the revolutionaries who of course were were quite divided there were a lot of loyalists in this country and uh, even the revolutionaries didn't think of themselves as breaking from britain or breaking from the british constitutional tradition or giving up on magna carta or property rights they thought of themselves as uh, moving towards self-government um as many parts of britain were moving towards self-government um and it's also a comic book account of the king because while he certainly had differences with the british colonists on uh, the english the american colonists in terms of you know taxation and and uh, and military issues and um expansion in the West, which he, he opposed and the American colonists wanted to expand into the West. Um, you know, these were policy this is what we would today call policy debates. Um, and, um, certainly relationship between the United States and the UK repaired very quickly. Um, you know, within half a generation or something, I mean, we, we had essentially the makings of the special relationship again. So I think it's a, it's, it's just one of these uh, misunderstandings in the United States that comes out of a um, a view of the American Revolution as somehow being a kind of a, a war against an evil monarchy, and it's just not historically accurate.
0: It, it's funny you talk about the um, how quick our, uh, after the Revolutionary War we kind of mended the fence. There's uh, the Empress of China. Are you familiar with that? And yes. so, yeah, so you go read, and then, like, they're wanting to send a ship to China because they don't want to buy tea for the Brits. <laughs> it's like, that's a long way to go. Dude, yeah. get Some caffeine, fellas. But they were they were serious about it. <laughs> so uh, it's good to see the cooler heads prevailed because uh, that was a long trek back in the time, back in those days to go, go across the world just to get your caffeine fixed, it seems like. but
1: uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there wasn't really uh, a break. I mean, obviously, with with the... Creation of a Republican government, that's a big break, but I mean, but at the at the, at the ground level, I mean, the practices of, of colonial government carried on exactly, you know, the way they always had. Um, and our neighbors to the North Canada took a different pathway to independence, uh, which involved, um, you know, uh, move towards self-government within the British crown. And then finally the reconstitution of their patriot, of their repatriation of their constitution in, in 81, but I mean, really, is there that much difference? I mean, basically you've got democratic countries, high di- high standard of living, uh, part of the Western tradition, um, the sort of legacies of Magna Carta <laughs> in both countries. So um, you know, the continuities I think are much more than the than the than the discontinuities.
0: Okay. So um yeah, so you're saying George the Third is at least where you'd want to go back to is, as far as for the U.S. perspective to understand that, that things aren't like they seem. And um, someone was telling me the other day, they said, you know, they're reading World War II history. And they said, you know, you never hear about the king or the queen or anyone. You hear about, you know, um, um, oh, gosh, I want to say Roosevelt. <laughs> Roosevelt. Um, Churchill. Churchill, thank you. All I can see is Roosevelt. Oh, you hear about is Churchill. And so it's even – even in more of a modern era, there, there's definitely a sense in which the monarchy has lost its its power. But yet it holds this, this place in society, at least in the West, um, where we're always following them. So why is that? So if it has no power, why are we constantly keeping up with these things?
1: Well, it does have power. It has uh, tremendous symbolic power. I mean, you could say the Lincoln Memorial doesn't have any power. Um, so why don't we just bulldoze it and put up some apartment buildings? Um I mean, the symbolic power is power. It's a different kind of power, but it's but it's power. It's 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 uh, uh, symbolism is a way to uh, unite people's thinking about a subject, such as um, the form of government you have and the long tradition of liberties that that represents. Symbolism is important to uh, give people a uh, a kind of a history lesson, a constantly living history lesson um, that. Uh, in the case of the British monarchy, it's, it's about the history of the development of English constitutionalism and the English uh, democracy. And um, for the same reason why we have, uh, you know, Constitution Hall um, in Philadelphia. For the same reason we have the Mall, the Lincoln Memorial. For the same reason why people go and look at uh, original copies of the Constitution. Um, I mean, y- you could say this is just symbolism doesn't have any power, but it does have power, right? It's important for a country to have symbols of its past and to have symbols of its founding and to have symbols that embody its development of constitutional government and free government. As in the case of Britain, it, it's a live royal family. Um, in the case of the US, it's, it's a document and it's statues and it's... Um, You know stories about the founders um they're both symbols right they don't they don't have a day-to-day impact on politics but they're very important symbols uh if 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 the integrity of that system is to hold together um and you know what revolutions do what real revolutions do is they they destroy people's belief in their founding principles um so the american revolutionaries broke with britain but they very quickly realized they needed a new set of founding symbols and founding moments, um, and the, in, in the British case, they have slowly shifted towards constitutional government, but they didn't want to give up on the monarchy because the monarchy represented that, you know, however long you want to call it, um, eight hundred years of political development, and, and that's that's an important uh, symbolic force.
0: Yeah, it, it's a topic of debate on this or discussion, at least on this podcast quite regularly, is um, um, what is it that modern day conservatives are trying to conserve? Like, w- what actually are they trying to conserve? And it seems that if you follow the conservative movement, that, that their messaging isn't quite clear or they're not quite clear on what they're trying to conserve. And actually, some of their um, rhetoric versus their policies, especially on a state level – Aren't always aligned where they could make impact, and so you talk about these these symbols. You have two types of symbols. You said you have like kind of a, a dead symbol, if you will, which is the Constitution, these statues, and we can go and we can read and try to understand the best we can um, about those people in their time. Um, and then you have a living symbol, and so just from a kind of a historian standpoint, what's harder to understand? Because neither are necessarily easy. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily hard to uh, easy to understand uh, the monarchy today versus maybe the the, the founders, so w- which is harder to
1: understand um well you know the 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 u.s case you know we have uh we have a series of of you know things we use to symbolize the founders some of them are dead but you know the rereading the federalist papers right reading reading the the documents at the time of the uh, the constitutional convention and whatnot i mean this is it's dead, but it's living. It's not. Yeah. It's
0: I mean, that the people are dead. That's all. Yeah. The people
1: are dead, but the ideas are that there is. for us to, to talk about. Um, And uh, in the UK case, I mean, they have, of course, as much dead symbol, you know, non-living symbolism as, as we do. Mm-hmm. Um, And they obviously have, they go back and read their, their debates on obviously uh, the Magna Carta. I mean, studying that, studying, uh, studying the Cromwell, the Glorious Revolution, studying the uh, Reform act of 1832, I believe, which is when they really expanded their, um, their franchise, um, all the way up into including, you know, the the time when the, the crown finally sort of gave up its right to appoint prime ministers. And that was done by the Houses of Parliament sort of, you know, in the Victorian era, essentially. So, um, so they have all that. The only, the only addition they have on top of that has been this, this living family, which basically has a, you know, a lineage going back um, you know, Hanover, you know, the, the House of Windsor is essentially the House of Hanover. Um, and, and all that does is it, it it's kind of like a uh, it's kind of like a, a, an enactment of that living constitution by actual people. Right. And, you know, and this is one thing I think that's maybe going to be on the agenda for Charles III, um, you know, it's been more or less taken for granted uh, in the UK that they Revere their past, they revere their institutions, their Magna Carta, their House of Parliament, the sovereignty of Parliament, uh, you know, all those things that we kind of assumed there's not much debate that this is a good thing, as in the United States, we've always kind of assumed, you know, we may differ on political issues, but we've always kind of all assumed that, you know, we we think our constitution is is a fine document. We think our form of government is a, is a, is a good one. We like federalism. Uh, we like habeas corpus. I mean, all the, we we used to think that all this stuff was pretty non-controversial, but it's not now, right? Um, and I think the the destroyers are maybe to your point about whether the conservatives are actually conservative anymore. I mean, if you hear a conservative say you know blow it up, then that's not a very conservative standpoint. Um, on the left, you hear the radical movements saying that the United States is founded on white supremacy and racism, and these institutions, all they do is protect racism, and white supremacy, so they need to do away with it and replace a system that was based on equality with a new system based on equity when uh, we're going to have these kind of racial czars doling out benefits and distributions based on race. Okay, so that is obviously... <laughs> not conservative either of course they would take pride in saying they're not conservative but you know those basic institutions are under question for the first time in 200 years and the same is happening in britain as well um and so charles iii um i think will have his work cut out for him in just making the case for you know the english anglo constitutional tradition
0: yeah and i, I think um you, as you talk through that one of the things that's kind of comparing the, uh, the monarchy versus the, versus us, us, well, I guess we're the Yanks technically I'm i I'm a Southerner. So <laughs> us, us Southerners down here, at least uh, us Americans, you know, part of what's being questioned in the U S is, and, and it feels like um, we have it as a country done a good job of nuancing and having proper discussions over the decades. And so you get these frustrations and these bullying points into Um, And so then eventually, you know, you kind of have these extreme sides that are taken and people aren't really, you know, uh, you can't really have a discussion there um, because we've kind of lost the narrative uh, because we let stuff build up over so long. Is that the same way? Would you read that analysis A and then B, is that the same way it's been in England? Have they not really had a discussion like we like they should have had uh, possibly?
1: Yeah, to some extent, or, or maybe the problem is they've been allowing the discussion to get away from them and not coming back to first principles. Um, so the 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 issue in the UK, as you probably know, is is the issue of kind of devolution and um, potential independence of Scotland and, you know, maybe Northern Ireland or, or, or um, some greater independence for Wales. And of course, that's you know, that is the breakup of the United Kingdom. If you lose if you lose the constituent parts, um, it is symbolically important. Actually, I think that the queen died in Scotland, um, first monarch since the 16th century to die in Scotland. Um, and and the reason that that's symbolically important is because that is the big challenge of, you know, the monarchy in the UK now. It's not obviously a political actor. It's not there to intervene in politics, but it is there to not just symbolize, to but actually protect the the United Kingdom, the system of government. I mean, if there were ever a reason for the monarchy to intervene in politics, it would be if there was a movement that threatened the constitutional democracy that they are. Well, well, in some ways, Scottish independence uh, is a threat to that. And, um, and you know, to, to make... To, so is that a conversation that they weren't having and so it suddenly crept up on them? Or was it a conversation that they were having but they were allowing it to slip away from them. They were allowing in devolution to Scotland to turn into Scottish independence. They weren't making a strong case for union uh, until a referendum, you know, until the last minute, until suddenly they panic and realize there's, there's a chance the referendum might pass, which it didn't. And, but, you know, Nicholas Sturgeon, the first minister of Scotland, who is promising to have another referendum. And so, you know, if you don't you don't stand up for and fight for a constitutional democracy, it can, it can die by a thousand cuts um, because you think, Oh, you know, they'll never come to power. They'll never achieve any changes. Um, and suddenly you wake up one day and and major constitutional changes are happening that you didn't think possible.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we've, we've seen that here in the West for sure. Across the, on this side of the pond. So, one of the debates I've been following online has been um, and you touched on this earlier, you know, some people are saying that the queen oversaw the, uh, the raping pillages of their countries and, and taking from them. And then on the other hand, I've seen people say that with the queen's death, we've now opened the door for society to kind of run free, that she was kind of the last person to keep the reins in on society before it's going to go to hell in a handbasket Two opposite extremes is either right some right some wrong how do you think about that because it's really weird it's not not a
1: lot of middle ground it seems like you're you're on one side or the other of this debate so in terms of the colonial areas um well a british colonialism was not rape and pillage so uh, even if she had overseen expansion of british colonialism she would not have overseen rape and pillage because that's not where british colonialism was it was a, a a liberal and positive effect almost everywhere it went um in any case The fact is, by the time she came to power, most of these colonies were going independent. Um, Several of them, you know, 25 remained under the British crown. I mean, as with the British crown as their symbolic head of state, uh, I think there's 15 now. They slowly have have transitioned away, but many of them, like India, Barbados, have stayed in the Commonwealth. So um, she doesn't, I mean, the British monarchy really, and, and including in Australia, Canada, I mean, it really does not. It's not the glue that holds the country together anymore in those places. Now, in the UK itself, um, you know, there's a more of an argument just because the royal family is much more present and they live there, right, and, um, and whatever other places decide to uh, go Republican, right, The, the UK is the is the least likely to go Republican so the so the monarchy is very much entrenched but then the question is how Popular is the monarch at the moment, and obviously Elizabeth was very popular. And um, in some ways, Republican sentiment is kind of like trying to light a fire in some in some some wet kindling, right? Because because nobody's going to get worked up against Elizabeth. She's obviously a, a kind and thoughtful and, and dutiful and responsible person. You know, it's hard to get Republican sentiment built up over her. But maybe Charles, um, you know. He's more of a personality. He's been around longer. There's, there's uh, you know, he's maybe going to face a greater challenge. And uh, does that sort of, in some ways, incentivize, um, yeah, Republican movements, secessionist movements um, in the constituent parts? Does it, uh, does it revive the Labour Party, which, you know, has a very strong Republican anti-monarchist tradition in it? um and make the labor party more radical because suddenly these anti-monarchists are playing a bigger role in one of the and it is a two-party system there as well so you know um that that I, I can see that happening again it's kind of depends on how charles disports himself i mean i think if he learns from his mother and let's be honest he had a good long time to learn from his <laughs> mother uh, he will recognize what kept the monarchy stable in the uk stable which is basically be seen as dutiful totally non non non-political totally um supportive of whatever is going on in the political system and that's the kind of key
0: so yeah and charles is 70 is he 70 70 something right Mm -hmm. so we we kind of have a short reign coming i mean i'm not not wishing ill on the man obviously but just math you know 20 years would be a good run for him it might be shorter than, than that should we expect? That to play any part of his his reign because he will have a very limited window.
1: Yeah, I think so, and and he may be you know one of the first monarchs to um, to abdicate before he's uh, you know in a, in a in a place of being debilitated. Um, and I think probably depending on the calculations about you know the the fifteen countries that keep the British monarch as their head of state, the most important two of which are obviously Canada and Australia. Um, to some extent New Zealand, um, that will that will, I think, figure into that calculation. Because like I say, there's no, there's no danger of the monarchy being uh being abandoned in Britain, but there's certainly in Australia, New Zealand, uh, to some extent Canada, there's a there's a chance of that happening. And and uh if 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 the threat is basically from Charles, whereas William would be a much more popular monarch, then yeah, we we will probably see a shorter reign. And his william is that who's next in line yeah
0: okay and how old is he in relationship to charles
1: oh he's quite a bit younger he's like 40 years younger
0: okay okay yeah so so yeah so you would see maybe maybe a short reign and then you'd have a, a, a rather potential lengthy reign of once again
1: yeah and and it's and it's an evolving monarchy i mean people forget that you know the netherlands is a monarchy um right and People forget that Spain is a monarchy. Uh, I mean, a lot of European countries are monarchies. You don't hear about their royal families because, you know, what they they did, and I think this will happen in the UK, is that the the royal family just gets radically slimmed down to just like the ruling monarch and their spouse and their direct (laughs) heirs and everybody else. Everybody else is out of a job and, you know, go fend for yourself, which is probably the direction they're going as well.
0: Well, and that that's part of this thing about these these symbols that are, um, you know, dead for lack of a better term and, and living is you could ask the living symbols what they think, right? You can you can actually ask them a question and they might say something, uh, or they're going to say something regardless about whether you've asked them or not. And so that it changes where these the symbols, the Federalist Papers, you know, you can go read the Federalist Papers, but if someone has changed their position and they they contributed to that, you might not be aware of it, right? Because it's just 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 the way that, that it works. So. Um, the larger the family is, the more likely it is to create problems because more people are going to talk, more leaks are going to happen. So maybe it's a good thing to slim it down some.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of like having, I mean, re- really, if you look at the the constitutional role of a monarchy, it's it's more like a, the role of a judge. Now it's basically to make sure that the law is followed. Um, and so, you know, Elizabeth was, you're actually pretty busy as a British monarch because you've got a lot of things you need to sign and a lot of, um, Acts you need to carry out as part of your constitutional role. Now it's all it's all process, right? There's no there's no choice involved. However, you are you do need to make, I mean, the whole premise is if, if these I's are not dotted and these T's are not crossed, I'm not signing it because we because there's a process, right? So it's it's a little bit of a like it like a job of, of a judge just hey saying, Hey, I don't make the law, but I'm in charge of enforcing it. And um so um, you know. So there's a, there's still a role there uh, for for the monarch in terms of being the kind of the check or the sort of like the the credible threat that you know if if you violate the law if you if you hold an election illegally uh, if you try and appoint an ambassador who who hasn't gone through your own laws uh, if you try and overextend parliamentary sovereignty I mean some people talked about when the EU when the Britain joined the EU whether you know this might create a constitutional crisis and whether the monarchy would you know, if the, if the monarch had been anti-EU, would step in and say, you can't do that. Uh, Parliament is sovereign. It, it, it cannot give up its powers to another, you know, external body. Um, so there's always going to be a job, you know, for, for the monarchy, just, just as a kind of, uh, like I say, a kind of credible threat to maintain the, the laws and the constitution.
0: Is it possible for the monarch to ever regain power? Or is that just too far
1: removed now? not regain power but to exercise power in terms of um you know like i say if a, if a, if a if a bill hadn't gone through its proper you know b- bills have to go through three readings in the parliament in the house of commons then they have to go to the lords they have to go th- through three readings in the lords you know only at that point do they get sent to the queen for a signature or the king now so you know let's say they're trying to rush something through and they kind of like do a half-assed job on one of the the readings the king could say i'm not signing this because you haven't followed parliamentary procedure i mean it's it's conceivable that that, that would happen
0: okay so obviously the queen's uh only been dead a few days now um so you're gonna have a series of books and articles and podcasts and then the history is going to be written and changed and morphed how do you think over the next weeks and months and years What's going to come out about the queen, maybe that we we haven't thought about, uh maybe some, maybe aspects that are that, that aren't appreciated that will be appreciated, or things that were neglected that, that, that they're gonna criticize her for.
1: Well, it's it's a little bit like when Victoria died, right? Victoria's reign was not as long as Elizabeth's, but it was the it was pretty long in the, in the 40 years or whatever it was. Um and I think what what happened is people because Victoria's reign was so long, people kind of started to take take it for granted that she was the that the monarchy was just kind of like stable steady constant um and then of course you know you get kind of a series of 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 kings um from victoria to elizabeth right i mean some of them die some of them abdicate i mean this whole story of kind of into the from victoria to queen elizabeth and people started to feel wow the monarchy is not you know it's 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 a it's a because it's a it's a it's an institution that is enacted by individuals, you know, individual quirks suddenly loom larger again, because we're kind of reminded that it was weird to have a single monarch who was just such a steady, predictable, constant presence as Victoria was as Elizabeth was. So, you know, I think, I think what people are going to say is, and people always look back on like the the great, the great stability of, of a given era. Right. And they're just going to look back on Elizabeth's reign as like, stability in English uh politics that you know will probably never be known again um and and I think it's then going to be sort of a retrospective of oh the long you know people used to talk about the, the long the long 19th century from you know 1815 to World War One you know this basic period where there, there weren't any major European wars between you know Napoleon and World War One and um And then looking back and seeing how unusual that was.
0: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of papal history, right? So you have these popes to come in and the church just kind of goes through this period of, you know, not a lot going on. And then you have popes and next thing you know, the church is at arms. And so uh, you can kind of see that, especially with the modern popes, kind of how that's played out as well. So that makes a lot of sense.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right.
0: All right. So obviously you've got a number of books um, you got. I mean, you just released one uh, with the interesting title. I wish I wish I had gotten you on for this one. In defense of journey, German colonialism. That's a that's a that's a that's a headline there, sir. I was like, wow, OK, how did I miss this interview uh, when, when when you published this? So give us the 30 seconds on that, because that is quite I had to get that read. That. That's quite a quite a headline. You, you've got me intrigued. You know what's going on there?
1: yeah so german german colonial uh overseas colonialism was relatively short-lived it was basically for about 30 years up until world war one and of course what happens at world war one is they get stripped of all their colonies so it's, it's a little known episode they had six colonies four in africa uh three in the pacific or seven four in africa and three in the pacific and um it's a little-known episode, but what I'm trying to say in that book is: a, the Germans were pretty good colonial power. I mean, they were very popular with the colonized, and they did a good job in in all of their colonies. Um, but the real sort of dirty secret here is, you know, the the Versailles has often been cited as the beginning of of the decline of German politics and the rise of the Nazis, right? And I think that's generally true. What's forgotten, because what, when people talk about Versailles, they're usually talking about reparations and disarmament and um, kind of the the spurning of germany and the, and the sort of the 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 ways that versailles became a kind of toxic issue in domestic politics and what i'm saying is that the stripping of colonies the, the the kicking germany out of the colonial club was also one of those really toxic legacies of versailles and had germany not been stripped of its colonies it would have continued to see itself as a as a western power as a european power the the very strong kind of liberal influences on German politics that came from its colonial enterprise uh, would have continued to be present as opposed to being absent. Um, Hitler was viciously anti-colonial. He hated the idea of colonialism because uh, he was basically a racist and and uh, he the Jews were very active in German colonialism. And he hated that too. and he was like, we're not doing any of that overseas stuff anymore. We're coming home and we're just gonna expand eastward and and ethnically cleanse everywhere we go. So I'm just trying to say that German colonialism was a was a bulwark against fascism. And the end of German colonialism was one of the great causes of fascism that is totally unexplored in the modern histories
0: that that is, It's interesting. And and it's it's one of these things that I think um, maybe now or over the next decade. I mean, my view, um, I've made no bones about it on this podcast is that, you know, the last 100 years, the map was kind of redrawn from the top down. I think the next hundred we're going to see it be redrawn from a lot of the bottom up movements that you'll see. Um, And I, I think when you say that, people go, "Okay, yeah, maybe I could be wrong. I don't think because of where we've been in history, uh, literally living in history, people understand that, you know, how these movements come about and how angry mobs and people and culture and shifts can happen. And so when you say that, listeners might go, huh, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's like, well, right. But, but, but wait, <laughs> you might start to see how stuff like this can make sense because people do get hacked off to the point where they do all kinds of, all kinds of crazy stuff because of other governments interfering and in, in losing the ability to do this and the other. It, 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 it's not even necessarily that you're always justifying what was happening before or not. It's just there is causal effects to actions. And so, um, okay, I'll have to check that out. Okay, where do you want us to send people to?
1: Uh, probably go to the uh, Regnery.com website, which uh, Regnery is... Uh, very proud and, and grateful to them for publishing both these books because they're kind of hot topics. The other one is called The Last Imperialist, uh, Sir Alan Burns' epic defense of the British Empire. Uh, that's a pretty easy case to make. Everyone loves making the case for the British Empire. And then the new one is called In Defense of German Colonialism. Um, as you say, a little bit of a startling title, but I think it's a really important case to make because Uh, You know, there's a danger of just taking all of German history and throwing it in the same box and saying it's all fascist and proto fascist and a prelude to fascism It's just totally uh, in in unfair treatment of the German past and it's it's wrong too and it's important to realize that you can have a perfectly liberal uh, free market economy and country that can really turn badly very quickly and the German case is an example of that. And, you uh, know, I'm trying to point out that one of the things that was keeping that, them from that was their overseas engagements. And I think being overseas engaged is a good thing for a country. Um, and I wouldn't want to see a country turn isolationist because I think it it, it it turns its politics in a toxic direction.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. because I always talk about, we talk about China a lot. It's like, you know, one of the things, you know, if you're like North Korea is the most isolationist. Well all they do is tell you that everyone around them is trying to come and get them. Well, and no one knows any different because you're isolated. <laughs> you can't, you can't actually balance out what's fact versus uh, fiction because of the isolation policy. So it's um, yeah. It's okay. All right. We'll link to all of that in the show notes, which you can find at warroommedia.com. It was lovely speaking to you today. Thank you for your time.
1: Great. Really enjoyed it.
0: Okay, folks, that is a wrap. Did you enjoy it? Let me know. Hit the heart button on the newsletter, five-star review, whatever. Just let me know what you think. Oh, and by the way, what do you think the legacy of Queen Elizabeth will be? Look forward to hearing from you in the newsletter at warroommedia.com.